we know that Paul has written uh, surmountable uh, information regarding God and theology and all leading up to this crescendo. But uh, we find ourselves here this morning in verse 31. So let's ask the question again. Verse 31, Romans 8. What then shall we say to these things? What shall we say to these things? Well, if you're like me, hopefully you're asking what things, Paul? What shall we say to these things? Well, what are these things? What, what are we thinking about or how are we, what are you asking? Well, some have argued that Paul is referring here when he says, what shall we say about these things? Some have argued that these things are referencing back to Romans chapter 1 all the way up to this point. And some have said they'd be more specific in saying that it was a, a reference from Romans 5 all the way up unto uh, this point. Regardless of where you think Paul is reflecting back on, you've got a whole lot to consider up till this point. Even if you started with chapter 5, you still have a great amount of things to consider. But Paul, in this letter to the Romans, has been relentlessly unfolding for us the hope of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And so when he says or asks the question, what then shall we say about these things? Here is a list of these things that we have learned from Paul beginning all the way back in chapter one. He has shown us that through Christ, we are justified before God. He has shown us that through Christ, we are reconciled to God. He has shown us that through Christ, we enjoy peace with God. He has shown us that through Christ, we are indwelt by the Spirit of God. He has shown us that through Christ, we are not condemned by God. He has shown us that through Christ, we are adopted by God. He has shown us that through Christ, we have hope in God for glorification. He has shown us that through Christ we have help that has been given to us through the Spirit of God. He has shown us that we have been called by God. And we have also, in Christ, been showed by, Christ, by Paul the certainty that all things work together for the good of those who love Him. So what do we say about those things? That's his question. What do we say then about those things? In verse 31, if God is for us, or that word if, you could even translate it as since, since God is for us, who, who? If God is the greatest, then who is there that could be against us? If God is for us, or since God is for us, then who could be against us? And there's your answer. The circumstances may indeed not always seem favorable to us or even for us. Others may oppose us. But God, He is for us. He is for us. So the next question then seems obvious, doesn't it? How do we know he is for us? How do I know that? 
Can I know that? Do we have that? How can I know that God is for us? Verse 32. If he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not with him freely give to us all things? Something happened to prove once and for all time that God is for us. Something has occurred to prove once and for all time that God is for us. And where do we look to find the assurance that we can rest in God being for us? The cross. If God sent His Son, and if He did not spare His Son, then how will He not give to you and me in Christ all these things? That's Paul's argument. And how many times do you and I need to be reminded of those things? This was a supreme act of love, we could say. Paul is arguing that if God has done the hard thing, which is giving up his son, then we can rest assured knowing that God will also do the easier thing, which is giving us all things. If God has done the hardest thing in giving His Son, then how will He not do the easiest thing by making sure we get it all? That's Paul's argument. That's his reasoning. That's his logic. Although here in our culture, we threw that out the window. God does like to use that. But that's the argument that he is making. He will give us everything necessary to shape us into the image of Christ. It didn't say he'd give us everything we wanted. This is not prosperity gospel this morning. But the Lord has redeemed us. Therefore, the Lord will not leave us to ourselves. Since the Lord has put forth his son to purchase our salvation... He will see to it that the ongoing work of our salvation and He will see to it that we make it home. The cross assures us this morning of the ongoing, unfailing, everlasting love of God for His people. Circumstances don't assure us of that. The days that we live in don't assure us of that. Our bank accounts are not going to assure us of that. But the cross assures us of that. The cross does. The cross of Christ. So I have three questions this morning that are really rhetorical. But I'm just taking them from Paul. So we want to ask these three questions beginning in verse 33. We've set the foundation with verse 31 and 32. So Paul says in 31 again, what do we say to all these things? Well, we've looked at what all those things are. So if God is for us, or since He is for us, then who's against us? He who did not even spare His own Son, so God has did the hardest thing, how will He not then with Him give us all things? So that's a a rhetorical question. But Paul is arguing from from the greater to the lesser. Paul is saying God went to this length 
or this depth or this height to give to you and me his son, how can we not also rest assured that the rest of these things will not come to pass as well? That's his argument. So then he asks another question in verse 33. He says in verse 33, who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. God is the one who justifies. So answer, (laughs) response, nobody, nobody regarding the elect of God, who can charge them with a crime or with a sin? Here's the answer. Nobody. That's what Paul just said here in verse 33. Because why? God has justified us. He has justified us. The Lord has slammed the gavel, so to speak, for those who belong to him and have said, not guilty. Not guilty. None. Absolutely no prosecution could succeed because God has justified us. None. Who is going to reverse his ruling? Nobody can. Nobody will. Because God is the one who justifies. Case closed. I think of Romans 5 verse 1. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. I think of this question and my mind went immediately to an old hymn. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hand and my name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. When Satan tempts me to despair, And tells me of the guilt within. Upward I look and see him there. The one who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died. My sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Behold him there the risen lamb. My perfect spotless righteousness, the great unchangeable I am, the king of glory and of grace. One with himself, I cannot die. My soul is purchased by his blood. My life is hid with Christ on high, with Christ my Savior and my God. That, that's an old song, it's shouting time in heaven. A sinner once lost is found, shouting time in heaven. Salvation has been brought down. No one of the angels rejoice. Anyway, so anyway, my mind works like that. It's just, just crazy. Anything can trigger something at any moment, okay? So um, when I think of justifying, God justifying my mind before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. And I want you to know that this morning, church. I want you to know that because you know as well as I do, when we go out into the world, we're beat up by the world. If not, by our own self, if we listen to it long enough, right? 
And if not to ourselves, then, then the accuser, the one that comes and dashes these darts, these fiery darts against us. But our hope and our assurance does not come from our performance or how well we're doing or what we're thinking at the moment or what's going on in my life around me. My hope and my assurance is that it is God who has justified me. The Lord has done this. Not me. And I can never bring that type of assurance to myself. Because my faith is often weak. And our hearts, as we know, are desperately sick and wicked. Our nature wrestles against the newness that we have experienced in Christ. And it's an ongoing fight and an ongoing battle. So what do we preach to ourselves? If God is for us, who can be against us? And if he has not even spared his own son, but delivered him over for us all, then how can we not expect to receive with Christ all things? No matter how life is looking, no matter how far down you may have sunk, those things do not give you assurance of eternal hope. What gives us the assurance of eternal hope and that God is for us is by looking to Christ who was sent to die on the cross. That's where our hope lies. Now go to the second question. First question, who can bring a charge against us? Well, we just answered that. Second question, verse 34, who will condemn us? So notice verse 34, who is the one who condemns? There's, there's no one to condemn us. Why? Because Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who intercedes for us. So who condemns us? None. One commentator said, with such a defense attorney, it's no wonder the prosecution loses its case. <laughs> Our hearts will try to condemn us. You believe it? That's what John said. First John three twenty. In whatever our heart condemns us, for God is greater than our heart and knows all things. That's the hope of God. Do you believe the accuser will try to condemn you? Revelation 12, verses 10 and 11. I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation, the power, and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down. He accuses them before our God day and night. And they overcame Him because of the blood of the Lamb. Seems a little bit of present time, but I ain't going to get into it. But anyway... The evil that lurks about will try to mislead us, confuse us, trap us, stir us up with doubt. Paul says something like this in Ephesians 6, 12. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities and against the world forces of the darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. However... In the midst of this battle, what do we say to ourselves? Who condemns us? For we have Christ Jesus. Romans 5, 8, God demonstrated his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Brothers and sisters, not only has Christ died for you, but Christ also rose for you. Romans 4, verse 25, he who was delivered over on account of our transgression, he was raised on account of our justification. 
So not only did he die for us, not only did he rise for us, and we often sometimes leave this part out, but Jesus lived for us. And now he is interceding for us. Psalm 110 verse 1, Yahweh says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put enemies, your enemies a footstool for your feet. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. And we need to remember what Paul said here in verse 34. Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who was raised, now who is at the right hand of God, interceding for us. Well, where does Paul get such things? Well, obviously Hebrews, right? Hebrews 1.3. He says, who is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power, who having accomplished cleansing for sin, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. John Stott said this, his very presence at the father's right hand is evidence of his completed work of atonement. And his intercession means that continues to secure for his people the benefits of his death. This is the most comforting message for saints of God. And I pray that we feast upon the blessings of Christ. I think of the responsive reading we had this morning that Brother Johnny led us in. You remember what one phrase said, Oh, forget none of his benefits. Don't forget them. Why do you think we come to the table? What does it say in front? Remember, remember, remember. Don't forget. Do this in remembrance of me. These truths about Christ are the balm for the soul, or I should say the weary soul of the pilgrim that is making his or her journey through this life. And I want you to know something else that I find very comforting. Do you know Jesus is praying for you this morning? That's mind-boggling, isn't it? One theologian, Louis Burkhoff, he said, It is a consoling thought that Christ is praying for us. Even when we are negligent in our prayer life. That he is presenting to the Father those spiritual needs which were not present to our minds and which we often neglect to include in our prayers. And that he prays for our protection against the dangers of which we are not even conscious. And against the enemies which threaten us, though we do not notice it. He is praying that our faith may not cease and that we may have come, come out victoriously in the end. Robert Murray McShane, he he said this, If I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet, distance makes no difference. He's praying for me. You say, really? Oh, have you forgot our dear brother Peter? You remember old Peter? What did Peter say? Oh... I think Peter was, you know, man, we, I think we identify with him so often. But he was ready to go to the bitter end with the Lord, do you remember? 
And Jesus said to him in Luke 22, He said, Simon, Simon, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you. (laughs) I have prayed for you. Any of you need to be reminded this morning that we have a Savior who prays for us? He's praying for you now. Knows you. Knows everything about you. And it's even... He... (laughs) Jesus is more committed to you than you are committed to Him. And I don't know about you, but I need to be told that every day. Jesus Christ is more committed to you than you are to Him. He has you. He's holding you. And He will never let you go. Jude, the little book of Jude. It says, To those who are the called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, I just want to remind you this morning that not only has the Lord lived for you, Not only has the Lord died for you, not only has the Lord been raised for you, but the Lord today is interceding. He's praying for you. The third question down in verse 35. It says, who will separate us from the love of Christ? So notice, notice Paul's thinking here. Verse 31. What what do we say to all these things? Well. Well. If God is for us, who's against us? Within verse 32. Well, he who did not spare his own son. So God has did the greatest thing ever. How will then he not do everything else that should fall in place? Then he says, well, who is there to condemn you? There's none. None. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? There there is none. Well, then notice the last question, because here's what you know we all wonder. Well, who's going to separate? Who will separate us from the love of God? Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Answer: Nobody, and not even not, not only nobody, but nothing, no thing. Paul really wants us to get this, and he says here in verse uh, thirty-five again: Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Then notice the list of potential. Separators. He says, will tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, or sword. Those are potential things that in their mind, the church at Rome, might would separate them from the love of Christ. So not only somebody or nobody can separate you, but nothing, can, no thing can separate you. And I, you know, I'm not going to get too carried away with English this morning. But Paul said here in verse 36, this is written, for your sake we're being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. He said, but notice verse 37, but you see that little word in. I in. Well, you know, I, when I was in English, <laughs> prepositional phrases, right? You can go in the door, out the door, around the door, above the door, under the door. All, we could go on and on, couldn't we? Um, 
And then we could, you don't care to know all that, but uh, notice the phrase, it says, in these things, in all these things. Does it say, what, what is Paul implying here? That we're going to escape these things or that we're going to be in these things? That we'll be in them, not outside of them, but in them. There is a potential that we might experience these things. And the hope that you and I need to be fully convinced of is that my assurance of eternal hope in God and His protection of my soul is not banking on whether or not my circumstances seem to be going in my favor. But rather that Jesus Christ died for me. And so He says here, in all these things, in them. Nobody's ever said we're going to escape all that. But they may come, may not come. But even if they do, and we find ourselves in them, what? What, Paul? In all these things, we are more than conquerors or overwhelmingly conquerors through Christ or through Him who loved us. Now, what does it mean... <coughs> That we are more than conquerors in these things. If I'm in them, how am I not being conquered by them? If I am going through famine, pestilence, nakedness, distress, or the sword, then how am I not considered being overcome by them? But rather, Paul says, in those things, we are overwhelmingly conquerors through Christ who loved us. What does that mean? Well, I'm glad you were asking that question. One writer said, to be more than a conqueror over affliction, distress, persecution, and so on. So to be more than a conqueror in those things indicates that these enemies or these potential separators are actually turned to the good of believers through the power of God. Do you remember the story of Joseph? What did he tell his brothers? What you meant for evil, God meant for what? Good. What did Paul just say back up in verse 28? And we know that God causes all things to work together for good of those who love God to those who are called according to his purpose. So if we find ourselves, and more than likely we will, in some type of distress, those things are not working in against us in the sense of pulling us away, but rather we find ourselves in them as being conquerors or more than conquerors because God takes those things and are working them for the good of His people and the glory of His name. Conclusion, or in summary, God is at work in every one of our lives. And He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Remember, remember, 
Remember that the evidence of the cross is the assurance for our weary souls. I thought about a song that Johnny sang last week, but again, my mind gets triggered. (laughs) But I was thinking about that, that the evidence of the cross is the assurance for our weary souls. Where would I get something like that? Just by... You know, we just, I tell you that because, hey, he had a pretty good thought that day. <laughs> no. <laughs> where, where do we find that? Uh, Hebrews chapter 6, verses 19 through 20. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul. Well, what hope? A hope that is both sure and confirmed and one which enters within the veil. Where a forerunner has entered for us, Jesus, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Well, I guess some people take points and use illustrations as far as a story in life, but mine goes to a hymn. But I was thinking about when, when darkness veils his lovely face, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. Wonder where they wrote that song from. His oath, his covenant, his blood, those three things support me in the overwhelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. I don't want you to miss another prepositional phrase either. Let's look at it again. Verse 37, but in all these things, we are overwhelmingly conquerors. And here's the next prepositional phrase, through him or through Christ or in him or in Christ. So where is our assurance found? Yet not I, but through Christ in me. It is through Christ. It's always been through Christ. The hope and assurance that you and I have for the weariness of our soul is found in Christ, in Christ alone. Paul says here, verse 38, I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God. Now time out. Why will I never be separated from the love of God? Notice the comma. It sets off something there. Which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. If I if my identity 
is in Christ. And so I belong to Christ. The Lord, the Father, the Father would have to stop loving the Son in order for me not to be loved by Him anymore. And let me remind you of what He said of His Son. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. So my assurance is founded solely and wholly in the position that Christ holds for me. I add to that nothing and I take away from that nothing. I attribute to that nothing because I am a simply a recipient of that what grace and I receive it not because I've earned it by merit, but rather by faith. Wherever you are this morning, I don't know your status. You're either in Adam or you're in Christ. And if you're in Adam, you're under condemnation. If you're in Christ, you have been pardoned. And I hope this morning you know that you know without a doubt that you're in Christ. And you know, I've learned something too. When some preacher says that, I hope you know without a doubt that you're in Christ. I just thought about it and I said, I remember, you know, early part of my Christian walk with the Lord, I'd hear a preacher say, you need to know that you know that you know that you know. The whole every no he said, I was trying to reflect back. Now, what did I do? I, 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 you know, I remember this and I remember, I, you know, I, I, I did, I, you know, I was here and I, I confessed my sin. And I did, I, did you notice everything I just said there? I, 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 I. As Alistair Begg said, if we don't learn to answer that in the third person, we're answering it wrong. Christ saved me. Christ gave me grace. Christ gave me the gift of faith. Christ gave me new life. He was talking about, you know, you get to heaven and he said, I've gave you this illustration before. If you have never watched it, you need to watch it. He said, you know, you, you get to heaven and the check-in angel probably won't be one, but he's just giving you an, just giving an illustration. You know, you, you show up and he's like, well, you know, okay, you were baptized when? He's like, well, I, I hadn't been baptized. I said, okay, well, let's do um, you know, do you, you understand the doctrine of justification by faith alone? You've been no, I, I hadn't done that yet. It's, okay, we we got, but maybe have a problem here. And so he gets his higher up angel, and he comes and he says, "Well, we hadn't had this, this." He says, well, "Sir, what basis are you here?" And he says, "Because the man on the middle cross said I could come." There's nothing like the grace of God. And I pray this morning we would be amazed of what God has done for us through his son.
Think of the song that they sang. Are you weary? Heavy laden? Troubled within? He is calling. Tenderly calling. Rest in Him. Come to Jesus. He will keep you safe. Trust Him. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you.